This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, A Feast Afloat by Tim Dix and Give It a Go by PDR Lindsay. A Feast Afloat, written and read by Tim Dix. Listening time, 6 minutes, 7 seconds. 131 of us pooled money and purchased a sailing ship. Each paid what each could pay. I paid nearly all my savings, but had not far to drive to the port and spent what few dollars remained on pallets of canned beans and pears and on a net of grapefruits. I stole a bicycle from one of the children in my building, thinking I'd ride it over the deck as we rocked through a night storm and then spent an afternoon scrubbing stickers from the frame. At the port, it could be seen who had money and who was strained, and it could be guessed who had donated five figures to our cause and who had donated two. It could be seen who was crafty and who was dim. Some had brought bags of dried food, and one man brought a foam crate of frozen turkeys. Many people were older than I'd expected, and many were younger, Some were young enough that I worried we'd be prosecuted for sailing away with them, and I screwed up my courage to address this possibility, but found no one of authority to speak to. We had no leader, after all. We had met online. I opened the trunk of my car and carried the bicycle and the grapefruits and the beans and pears aboard. Our ship climbed waves and slipped so subtly through the sea that land was gone behind us before I thought to wave it my last. Twelve of us knew how to sail, and instructed the rest in how to help. And it was promised that we each would have our turn at command, that the operation of a ship this size was a difficulty diffused by numbers. I was uninterested and hid below with my bicycle which was side-stowed beneath my bunk, an embarrassment with its angles and its metal that flashed in the thinnest lamplight. My duties above called for attention. I informed the first messenger that I was sick and the second that I was dead. I pressed myself against my bunk and willed my body to pass through the hole into the waters beneath, but I was pulled above decks and bathed in insults and in the light of morning. I was offered the next port, or a ride from the news helicopters that dogged us when close to land, but asked for a mop instead, and made heroic my period below, a time of rest and preparation for a thorough cleaning of the ship, a scrubbing that inspired the others to bring me wine, sandwiches, ho. Some imitated my industry, and others grew slothful. Those of us who endeavored to carry the work of others enabled those others to grow fat and sleepy, and I found them easy to kill when the urge and boredom came on me.
The first I took with a shoelace around the neck. He had moved into the higher cabins, as most of the idol had done, and his skin was supple, and my arms were thick from work. I left his body in its bed through the week, and each night took one of his neighbors. By the seventh, a grand stink had risen in the hall, but those left to notice had grown too lazy to complain. As I entered the last room, I saw movement by the bed and thought myself learned and trapped. But the woman there shushed me, and together we held a pillow to the face of the man beneath the sheets. When all above had perished, those of us who remained met to discuss the corpses. The sea stretched behind and before and around and ever, but some worried the flesh would attract sharks and that sharks would attract the helicopters. Someone proposed we keep to the deeps so as to avoid scrutiny, but another proposed that we court attention and establish our legend. One of us reminded the rest that none of us could sail. The rest reminded her that we had forfeited the chance of repentance, that no shore would accept us even if we could safely make port. We piled the bodies above decks, but then, in jest, grew artful and lashed stiff wrists to rails, to masts, to the wheel. A ship of the dead, someone called, and we aimed for lights as best we could and waited for helicopters that didn't come. Rocks sprouted always from the shallows, and when sufficiently hungry, we went to the radios, but found silence, and then wondered if we had twisted the dials correctly. We wanted food and safety, or at the least for someone to stare at us aghast. At last, in desperation, we piled clothes and trash at the decks aft and lit the heap, and when night fell, we rode a torch a beacon cutting the sea. Our crew labored tirelessly to fight the fire's spread and to repair that wood it ate, but it caught select of the corpses and the smell of cooked meat overcame what remained of our reserve and we feasted. No helicopters shone beams on us even as we caked our faces with grease. Our solitude was a waste and a shame. We knew, each of us, that when cameras finally came, we'd have to repeat the spectacle, and that if no corpses remained, we would create fresh ones. Tim Dick's writing appeared most recently in Visa Tergo and is forthcoming in Uncanny Valley magazine. He blogs at timdix.wordpress.com and lives in Minneapolis. Give It a Go, written and read by PDR Lindsay. Listening time, 14 minutes, 28 seconds. Give It a Go, by PDR Lindsay. I thought turning 50 meant starting to get old and sensible. Having a bit of security, an easier life, me and Tom without the kids. Time for us, with a bit of cash in hand for something special like that holiday in Italy I've dreamed of. Well, I'm a bleeding optimist, aren't I? With emphasis literally on the bleeding. Bleeding hopeful, bleeding stupid. 
And now, no bleeding use. Oh, life can't half kick you in the teeth. I've never smoked, nor got more than tiddling once a year, and I ate well. Well, it was a way to make money for what the kids needed if I grew our fruit and veg, baked our bread and cakes, preserved and jammed and jellied. Cancer was definitely not the present I expected, not on my fiftieth birthday, especially as it was the old lump-in-the-breast type cancer that catches a woman where it hurts most. Nah, I'm not vain, but what woman doesn't feel queasy at the thought of losing a breast? And that was only the beginning. Our troubles came on in battalions. Hubby's company turned mean last year. They stopped the health insurance for the family. Oh, oh, Tom was covered, but private the private health insurance scheme we tried to join, it wanted him to join as well. So whilst Tom dragged his feet, forgetting to ask his company about changing over, I got cancer, and then no company would take me. It makes a real difference enduring the public nightmare, an operation in the public hospital, especially with the private hospital across the road. There's no privacy in the public ward. Everyone earwigs on your conversations while busily counting up your baskets of fruit and the flowers and the cards. And it made me spit the waiting. My operation was put off three times. The surgeon had to cross the road from the private hospital and he couldn't make it, poor thing. Over the road he did the minimal breast removal job, restructuring what was left. For me it was the cheapest butcher's chop and a crude line of stitches where once I'd had a lovely cleavage. And Tom didn't hang around either. I never saw him the morning of the operation, and afterwards he needed more comforting than I did. There was no one to talk to about how much losing that breast hurt. And, oh, it did. I mean, I didn't flaunt myself around like a tart, but I'd enjoyed my breasts. <laughs> so had Tom. I used to buy expensive lace bras and wear smooth-fitting tops. If you've been given great breasts, then why not enjoy them? When it came to Tom's annual Christmas do, my dress always had a bit of a plunge. Uh, uh, discreet, mind you. I'm not one for bursting out of my buttons. Men don't need any encouragement to be a flaming nuisance when you've got a pair of 42 C's swaying in front of you. Even after 32 years, Tom was always sneaking up behind me to have a quick snuggle. Poor Tom. The ten-pound weakling on the beach is Mr. Universe compared to my hubby. Still, he had size where it counted. Nice in bed, if you know what I mean. A bit useless out, though. Not a world leader, my Tom. More the cannon fodder type. Great if told what to do, but helpless without instructions. Steady as middle management in the accounts office. A solid, reliable worker. Well, he was. Perhaps it was my breast going west, trashed to the incinerator, and me hurt and angry with him for making me feel like I was a bit of rubbish too. But suddenly Tom had a problem. A male problem. He just went all floppy and couldn't get it up. Well, he didn't go all depressed or visit the doctor for something useful like Viagra. Oh, no, not my Tom. He hit that male menopause thing instead and started preening himself. He had a magnificent head of hair. It was black going silver curls. Overnight it suddenly turned boot-polished black. Then the silly old fool took to wearing his son's shirts and jeans and trotting off to the club. So he said. He'd come back reeking of booze and stale smoke, enough to cover any cheap perfume, but not hide the lipstick on his cheek. I wondered if he was seriously considering trading me in. Anyway, 
There's Tom making an idiot of himself, and me too shaky to haul him back into line. Next thing, the, drug, the doctors stick me into a drug trial group, as my cancer was a bit advanced. They stuffed me full of a foul new drug that left some of your hair and teeth intact, but made you ache from scalp to toes. For two weeks I couldn't move. I just sagged on the bed all day, praying for the pain to stop, and my stomach to leave off trying to empty itself. I needed my kids to come and hug me tight. I needed Tom to let me talk away my fears. But all that silly man did was sneak in, dress up and creep out. On Wednesday of the third week, as I began to stop feeling like a ghost, Tom came home early. I couldn't believe it. I staggered to meet him. Clunk went his bike against the garage wall. Ping went the bicycle clips as he popped them off. The key rattled in the lock and in he tripped, catching a foot on the threshold. He was all white and wobbly. I've been asked to resign, he whispered, and burst into tears. Of course, I thought he'd been had for sexual harassment. <laughs> There's some forward little baggages working in his office, and what with the silly mood he'd been in ever since my breast removal, it seemed to fit. Good job I didn't blurt that out. It wasn't him. The company jargon was downsizing and relocating. In real English, they meant they were cutting back and Tom was out. He was too old and expensive for them. With his wages, they could hire two of those dizzy young gigglers and buy a new computer. But that left us desperate. We hadn't finished paying the mortgage. We'd extended it to help the boys, one through art school, the other to an engineering degree. Well, we had to help them, didn't we? Bloody government introduced tuition fees for universities. Use the pays, was their catch cry. But our kids couldn't get part-time work when there wasn't any, and they did try. I'm proud of my kids, and I don't begrudge them the money, like my stepmother did for me. They worked, they earned their university places, and they're better paid for having been. But I wish I'd seen into the future. I could have tried to save a little more, though out of what, I don't know. Poor Tom, he cried all night. In the morning, as he wept into his porridge, he told me his pension was lost too. Now there's one thing about Tom being a loyal worker and true follower. He's been a faithful union man. So I propped myself up against the wall behind him and I prodded him into phoning the union. They were already on to the company. They added Tom's name to the list and the union man promised a visit. They didn't think the pension money was spent on other things. That was what I thought. They believed this was a bit of bullying to soften up the redundant and make him accept smaller payoffs. But because of the dispute, the union man warned us, the payouts could take months, even a couple of years. And would we like to talk to the financial expert? Tom ummed the nerd till I hissed in his ear to say yes. Yes, we would. Someone had to keep us from losing what bits we'd scraped together. Poor Tom couldn't cope. He hadn't got to grips with the fact that this cancer might kill me. And if it hit him instantly, no job, no pay, no me, he'd be pulp. I didn't want the kids having to look after him before they'd had a bit of their own lives. The third blow came in the post the next day. My stepmother had written. Poor Dad, he was lonely after Mum died. I was a bit of a handful, and a teenager in need of female advice. Well, he took up with the gardening club, and he met Maud. Yes, really, come into the garden, Maud. We used to have a good laugh about it. She was a bit soft on the royal family and very keen on young ladies. We used to giggle about that too. I was eager back then for female company. 
Maud dressed well and she knew a bit about makeup. She was all right, really. We got on comfortably. The only snag was her 21-year-old son. When he whistled, she ran. Her world revolved around him. Whatever Michael wanted, he got. He was clever, stayed on at university, thanks to Dad's money. Took a law degree and some very expensive specialist training. I got the choice of dental nurse, kindergarten teacher, or registered nurse. According to Maud, that's what nice girls do. And any money for education was for Michael, of course, because he's the boy. Well, there wasn't any trouble when Dad died, for he'd left everything for Maud to use during her lifetime. Then it all went to me. <laughs> Michael didn't like that. But the trouble came later, over the holiday home at Lake Taupo. We'd called it a batch, as if it were a simple little bachelor's cottage. When Michael discovered that the batch was a valuable, well-built house, he wanted to sell it. He made Maud write. He claimed she needed money. There was a document for me to sign. I read it, had it checked out by a solicitor, and then rang my stepmom. Oh, but you must sign, she wailed. Michael will give you a fair price for the land. That was the problem. I owned the land, but Dad built and paid for the house. Well, first Dad built a cabin. Uh, Dad and us, we had lovely summers at the lake, and as my kids got older, the cabin needed extensions. So Dad took on building a good house for us. Well, we all helped. We built a beauty, and we spelt, spent several summers doing it. With six bedrooms, a great veranda, and a deck right down the shoreline, we certainly had the nicest home on our stretch of the lake. Well, once Michael knew that I had the ownership papers for the land, and he couldn't sell the place without my help, he tried to persuade me. But he wouldn't make an offer on paper, just gave me promises. I stood firm, told Michael I expected what the real estate people said the land was worth, and my youngest son's lawyer friend wrote a letter for me, setting it all out neatly with the amount clearly stated. It was a tidy sum, for the land had far more value than the house. Michael went quiet after that, hadn't bothered me for a couple of years. Now here was another letter from Maud. Michael couldn't afford to build a granny flat for her, so Michael had organised a company to remove the batch. It would be relocated at Michael's for her. She was very sorry, but if I wouldn't let her sell it for the money that was morally hers, etc., etc., morally hers? What did she want with that great big place? But under Dad's will, it was hers to use until she died. After which, Michael wrote in the P.S., I would have to relocate the house at my expense. The crafty, sneaky, rotten bugger. I love that house. I railed and yelled. I even rang Maud. Michael answered. Well, if I wouldn't let him sell it, this was the way it would have to be. He couldn't possibly afford to build a granny flat. The lying bastard. He earned more money in one year than we saw in ten. I went back to bed, and Tom came too. We lolled against the pillows, festering together, twins in misery. Next evening, over one of my French casserole dinners, he perked up and he said, Come on, let's go see the house before it goes. I stared. No way did I want to see that house. I burst into tears and never stop. I've managed to hold myself together up till now, but to lose our batch, well, it would be to lose Dad all over again. My best memories were of summers at the lake. I can't. I went back to bed, buried my head under the pillows. Oh, we need a little break. I've nothing to do now. Tom patted my back, pleading. Come on, one last time. I gave in. So here I am, 
sitting on a bleached silver log in our bay, my toes scrunching up the tiny pieces of cream pumice in the grey sand. And Tom was right. I do feel better. It's a cheery place. The lake's all dimpled with dazzles of sunlight, and tiny waves are crisscrossing each other with boisterous slapping noises. The big black shags dive for fish, then they hang themselves out to dry by their wings on the sunniest branches of the gnarled pine tree. They look like manky old washing. My brain functions again, slowly through the chemical fog, but it's a winner. Tom's happy anywhere, so why don't we live here? The kids bought me a mobile phone to use in hospital, and I text them. I'm not too good at it yet, but the messages get through. We'll show Michael. What can be moved off can be moved on. If we sell our house in the city, we could pay off that bloody mortgage. Well, there wouldn't be much left over, but my engineering son knows of an old house near his office which is for sale for removal. It's a decent place, Mum, just needs a lot of tidying up. Well, it shouldn't be difficult to organise a quick house removal to the lake. Then my sons, plus that large army of their mates I've been giving free holidays to for years, can spend the summer doing the place up. We'd have a home again, mortgage-free. Maybe it is possible. Tom sneaks up beside me and settles his bony shanks on the log. I squeeze his hand and he squeezes back. Then he grins and puts an arm round me. Well, things are improving. I nudge him. Feeling better, then? My dad was a great believer in never quitting. Go on, he'd cry. Give it a go. I reckon I will. And if Tom's not up to it, I'll do it on my own. You can go under or live what life you've got left. I'm counting on at least two more summers, and I'm going to enjoy them. PDR Lindsay has survived earthquake, severe aftershocks, floods, and more unemployment this year. It's not been fun, but she's still writing. It's what's kept her sane. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright, Bound Off, and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.